You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This segment is made possible by an educational grant from Shire Pharmaceuticals. Welcome to Updates from the Mayo Clinic, focusing on primary care pediatrics and child mental health. Here's your host, Dr. Peter S. Jensen, a childhood and adolescent psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Hello, this is Dr. Peter Jensen from the Mayo Clinic Update series on child mental health in primary care. With us today, we have an expert in adult mental health in primary care, Dr. Mark Williams, psychiatrist at the Mayo Clinic and a leader and innovator in helping primary care systems get up to speed in providing state-of-the-art mental health services in primary care. Welcome, Mark. Oh, thank you. So, Mark, you know, this is a pretty uh, interesting topic, I think, in that across the country we've had an era of mental health specialists, but there's a big change afoot, it seems like. Mark, can you tell us why this is needed? Why is this a good idea, and why do we need primary care providers to actually deliver mental health services when supposedly there's plenty of us psychiatrists around? Well, there's probably several reasons why that's happening. Um, one reason is that it's sort of a recognition of what's already happening. Um, there was a uh, Minnesota Council of Health Plans report on Minnesota's mental health in 2008 that showed in Minnesota at least 80% of the antidepressant prescriptions were written already by primary care providers, not by psychiatrists. And uh, when when we look at where does studies on epidemiological studies on mental health, we see most of mental health patients tend to present in primary care, and only a small subset get to the specialty areas. And so uh, we we already know that this is happening, and it's largely related to shortage of mental health providers. It's it's really not possible uh, for us to meet the demand. Plus, patients tend to prefer to work with their primary care providers who they already know from having to see them on other medical issues that often are comorbid with depression. Well, so can the primary care provider really do a good job? I mean, can they effectively diagnose depression, for example, and can they actually treat it effectively? No, absolutely. Um, I, I've been working in primary care settings for over uh, 15 years, and I've been very impressed by the uh, abilities of primary care providers to manage many mental health conditions. And in depression in particular, many times there's uh, um, uh, levels of severity in depression. We uh, Psychiatrists often look at a study called the STAR-D study, which tried to uh, implement uh, depression management over the course of 12-week blocks. And uh, we found that um, initially people would give in citalopram as an example, and uh, about a third of them maybe got better. But it took several uh, steps after that to get 60 to 70 percent of the whole population better with trying different drugs, adding medications, and so on. And so when I speak with primary care providers, I show them that study, 
and say, you know, on this first level or the second level even of treating someone with depression, you don't necessarily need a psychiatrist to start somebody with a treatment. What you might need is when you find that the first line treatments aren't working and then having a relationship with a specialist is important. But on those first lines of, of identifying depression and getting people started into remission, that can easily be done in primary care. So uh, that's, in many ways, very encouraging, I guess, given both the shortage of uh, mental health specialists and it seems like patients' preferences not to have to go off to, say, a mental health specialist. I don't know if it's possibly stigma or maybe costs, uh, but it seems like that offers a lot of advantages, potentially, if it can be done well. Absolutely. And and one of the things that uh, I've noticed is that primary care providers are particularly open to tracking outcomes. Um, and what we've done is we've introduced measurement tools into primary care that both help with the diagnosis of depression and also track outcomes. And we've been able to show excellent outcomes uh, consistently in primary care that uh, um, get patients into remission. So what kind of measures, uh, you know, in a busy primary care setting could you use that really going to fit what the primary care provider's doing with a lot of people coming in and out and lots of illnesses during a given day? The one that we've used the most often is called the PHQ-9. It's certainly not the only um, kid on the block. There are plenty of other choices. The thing you want to look for in a measure is to what extent it is quick for a primary care patient that it's easy to score, is it, is it have a copyright cost, uh, and, and has it been validated, those kinds of issues. And the PHQ-9 has been adopted across the state of Minnesota as the preferred instrument for depression. Now, it has nine questions on it, and the first two questions can be used as a screening tool so that if patients come in and they're positive on one or the other of those two, then you can go on and do the whole PHQ-9 if you want, which is just seven more questions. And if you look at the criteria on the PHQ-9, it's basically what the DSM or the Diagnostic Statistical Manuals uh, with, that we use in psychiatry, it's basically those criteria for the patient to answer. So in a sense, they're going through the diagnostic book for you and documenting to what extent they have all the symptoms. Now, that doesn't clinch the diagnosis. A clinician has to be involved just like with any other of our tests. We tell patients and primary care providers it's sort of like checking a blood pressure. In the old days, uh, a patient went before blood pressure cuffs might come in and the doctor would have to figure out are they hypertensive or not, should we increase their medicine, but now everyone gets a blood pressure. And so we wouldn't want somebody coming in with depression and the doctor just looks at them and says, you know, you kind of look like you're not depressed. Uh, we'd like them to measure the symptoms of depression. So we use the PHQ-9 both to assess the patient and to follow them. And what the clinician does is make sure that the reason that they're showing symptoms on the PHQ-9 is not some other obvious issue, like they had a death in the family in the last few days or something like that. I see. So I understand the PHQ-9 stands for Patient Health Questionnaire. Is that right? That's correct, yes. It's a, it's a part of a larger group of questionnaires used in primary care, but this one is focused, nine items focused just on depression. Now, now, if a primary care provider were to, say, do this, maybe they're not doing much of this, and they were to put, say, a measure like this into place, 
uh, and maybe begin to learn how to provide this treatment if they aren't doing it. From the doc's perspective, what's good about that? How does that help them and help their day? Well, actually, uh, it depends a lot on to what extent you feel you have backup. We've found in uh, doing projects on depression in primary care settings that if we could get a psychiatrist um, and some uh, mental health providers linked to a primary care practice, then the primary care provider's interest in using tools like the PHQ-9 would go way up because um, frequently our primary care providers in most settings where I've worked are struggling with trying to see a lot of people in a short amount of time. And if they identify someone as depressed, it immediately puts them behind on the next few patients that they're seeing. So what we've tried to do is develop a plan so that if they found a depressed patient, they could hand that patient off to someone who could work with that patient while they move on to the next person. But then it also gives them a way, a structure, if you will, to track that patient when they see them in follow-up. I guess in a way, maybe by analogy, if they did a general health screen on someone, they found uh, maybe their their blood sugars were high or they're spilling uh, glucose in their urine, they'd say, well, I can't manage this possible diabetes right now, but it does lead to a set of new steps, I would guess. Right, right. You know, this sounds wonderful, but does it work? I mean, if you actually put these kinds of programs into place, do patients get better and do docs seem pretty happy with the whole approach? They really do. Uh, It's been mostly studied in adults, although we also have a program for kids that we're doing. And in adults, there have been up to 40 randomized trials showing that a collaborative care model um, for depression really does have good outcomes. There was a big study done uh, that started this all uh, off called the IMPACT trial, and that was out in uh, University of Washington and on the West Coast. And And what they did is they introduced these components, these uh, known components of collaborative care that have to do, in a sense, with how to manage a chronic illness. And when they introduced those components into the the clinical practice, they were able to show almost a doubling of improvement on patients. And here in, in Minnesota, we've copied that model and uh, have called it the Diamond Project uh, with some tweaks here in Minnesota to to, uh, adjust it to our environment. And again, we've shown a significant improvement in the number of patients showing response and remission for depression through the use of this collaborative care model. So it's actually changing patients' outcomes, patients' lives. Doctors are accepting it, liking it. Uh, And I understand from you on other conversations, you found a way to get the health insurance companies to kind of get behind it and actually say, you know, maybe we can pay for this too. Yeah, that's that's what was unique about the Diamond program. When we were looking into changing the way depression was managed in Minnesota back in 2006, we approached the providers of care, the insurance companies, and the patient groups and asked how they felt it was going in terms of managing depression, and nobody was happy with the way it was. The the waiting for the next psychiatric visit was often two to three months out. Uh, There was concerns about a lot of different antidepressants and who keeps track of them. There were no tracking mechanisms. And so uh, the uh, Institute for Clinical Systems Improvement, the Quality Improvement Group in Minnesota, pulled together the steering committee, which I've been on, 
and uh, got the insurance companies on the committee too, and and made a in a sense an, an agreement that if we got the practices to change their um, uh, model of care in line with what the research showed, would they be willing to do a bundled monthly payment for depression management? And they agreed, and we are still doing that model today. That's very lovely. You know, it would seem like this is going to be very relevant for healthcare reform, and I'd like to ask you about that. First, let me say, uh, we're talking today with Dr. Mark Williams, a psychiatrist here at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. And Mark is the leader and innovator of a, a number of really nationally prominent programs putting depression treatments into primary care, along with other colleagues across the state, uh, universities and healthcare systems here in Minnesota. Mark, I want to ask, what will be the impact, as you see it, of accountable care organizations, ACOs, the whole Affordable Care Act, and as people are now trying to think about how do they tighten up making sure they do a good job by their patients, because if they don't, they'll get penalized. Is this going to be affected? ACOs and the Affordable Care Act going to affect this kind of activity? I think that there will be um, more interest. There is already seen, we're seeing more interest in these kind of collaborative care models. We have um, uh, found that if you can address the patient as they present in primary care for a mental health need with effective tools to measure that problem and then backing up the providers there to start addressing it early, you you really can get patients back to work more quickly. Uh, we've shown that. And you can improve, improve their chances of being managed without having to use higher cost services like the emergency room or the hospital. Over four-year time frame, this type of model has been shown to save several thousand dollars per patient. Uh, and so the healthcare institutions are looking at that. And, you know, one of the challenges up to now has been these different silos, the, the silo of mental health care, the silo of primary care, and then the silo of the money that uh, the insurance company might get versus the silo of the practice having to pay for upgrades. Um, and what's happening with ACOs is those silos are being blended together so that people have to work together. And uh, so I, I can see more of this kind of work being promoted as we move ahead. Boy, a lot of changes underway. I noticed you've used several times the term collaborative models and uh, collaborative approaches. It sounds like you're saying, don't try this alone. <laughs> but you don't have to go it alone, uh, at least when the healthcare systems and organizations, providers come together. It sounds like that does kind of ensure the availability of the psychiatry backup. So you're not hanging out there in the breeze as a primary care provider. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's it's probably good if a primary care practice is looking to doing this kind of thing to read a bit about it because um I for for a few years before I I got into doing the Diamond project, I was just going out to a primary care practice and seeing patients. And I, I'm not knocking that model. That That's very uh, uh, good for the patients there, and it creates the relationship. But it's not quite the same as a, a model that's 
fully collaborative because it's very easy for a specialist, psychiatrist being one of the specialists, to go and just do what they do everywhere uh, in the specialty practice in primary care, but really not become part of that system. So it's important to look at ways to actually make it a collaborative environment where the psychiatrist is spread out as far as you can to cover a larger population, which means they do a lot of supervision, curbsides, and don't necessarily have to see face-to-face every patient. That's exciting. I'm just kind of reminded. I thought, well, you know, I guess if we only let pulmonologists see people with uh, COPD or if we only let the infectious disease specialist manage asthma or something like that, we would be having a huge crisis of manpower, uh, and many people wouldn't be getting treatment. And it sounds like that's been what we've been dealing with in mental health. I think that that uh, we do set things up a bit that way. I think, there, I mean, there's a wide range. I mean, I, I have to say that I've been very impressed, as I said before, with the primary care providers. And like all of us, there's different levels of uh, comfort. I, some of my colleagues in primary care, um, before we developed this model, if the patient was depressed or anxious, they would refer immediately. And others would actually try to manage for a while on their own before making the referral. But now there's been more of a leveling where they're able with because I'm right behind them and willing to see any of their patients they're they're able to manage these patients more effectively. But you know what we do in mental health is with a stigma and also things like the black box warning for kids is that we frighten away the general practitioner from managing a problem that could be managed right where the patient's presenting and we really need to work together to challenge that. That's inspiring in, in so many ways and I see that this is a potential path forward to really expanding our workforce and then helping people maybe who otherwise wouldn't get help. Mark, I wondered if you could tell us, does this model work for anxiety or substance use? How about other things that are often presenting first to primary care? There's adaptations to this model that you have to make. I mean, the one of the big... Um, challenges in uh, healthcare redesign with using collaborative care is you have these what they're called care coordinators and these are people trained in a uh, how to manage patients who are complicated and they're really the glue that tie the specialist to the patient to the system and to the primary care provider and so one debate is do we need a different trained care coordinator for every illness anxiety substance use diabetes depression or can we get by with having an, a multi-trained care coordinator? And and so that's that's uh, experimentally being resolved all over the U.S. What we're doing here in Mayo is uh, we're trying to build upon what's happening with depression by adding trained uh, therapists, LICSW therapists here, but they could be another type of therapist elsewhere, to, to model after a, uh, another uh, research program called CALM, C-A-L-M, which is uh, a evidence-based model to manage anxiety. And we're adding them in to work with the care coordinators when they find an anxious patient and then having a PhD involved with them. And then we're also screening people for alcohol and drug abuse using yet a third acronym-labeled model called ESPERT. And this acronym has to do with screening uh, for uh, substance use and be- brief referral to three- treatment. And what we do is we do motivational interviewing for patients who screen positive, 
and the primary care provider and their staff actually have a lot of power in trying to tell a patient who's getting into risky drinking to stop that pattern before it actually becomes so severe that they need to go to the tertiary system of of uh, addiction care. So what we're doing is t- testing those models, one at each clinic, and then we're going to try to merge them together, looking at how to u- get the most out of the fewest resources. As you think about some of the big costs, you know, that people are worried about with uh, uh, trying to contain costs with accountable care organizations now and the Affordable Care Act, and I'm thinking of diabetes, COPD, heart disease, etc. Uh, do these models affect those patients as well, where maybe there's problems with adherence, uh, maybe where they're actually depressed or something else is really going on? Absolutely. There's a lot of interest in this area. Um, the most obvious information about what you're talking about is that uh, patients who are depressed just by the nature of the illness tend to have trouble getting motivated to do what's involved. And if you have a chronic illness like diabetes or coronary disease, et cetera, it's a lot of uh, burden on you as an individual to do all the monitoring involved, to refill your medicines, to, t- to manage your diet. It takes a lot of work. Um, and what we find is that a depressed person has a much harder time getting the energy up to do that. So we also found, however, that depression increases the risk for diabetes in recent literature, and we find that the risk of a negative outcome after, for example, a myocardial infarction goes up if you have depression. So there's probably two-way arrows going on here in this kind of difficulty. And so one of the things we're also doing is uh, we're involved in a multi-state study right now with uh, Medicare and Medi- Center for Medicare and Medicaid Studies to implement a model for patients who are comorbid diabetes, comorbid coronary disease, and depression. They have to have one of those two medical problems and depression. And we're trying to see if we can really um, address those problems more effectively upstream so that they use less of the time in the hospital in the ER and can be managed in their homes. If you could maybe, as we're approaching the end here, think about those healthcare administrators out there who are thinking about costs and uh, increasing the value uh, of what they're able to do and, and benefiting patients' outcomes. What would you say to them in terms of advice about their looking at these models uh, and advice to their primary care providers about really how workable um, and effective and palatable these programs are? It's, they're in a tough spot. Uh, the challenge with uh, um putting in these kinds of models is there is some upfront investment, uh, you know, the investment of getting your providers off of the busy patient-after-patient schedule to get training. Uh, There's the investment of hiring care coordinators uh, and finding where does that resource come from. And there's the investment of finding the specialist, in this case a psychiatrist or uh, the internist uh, that's helping you with the medical problems who can back up the system. Uh, but if you can uh, negotiate with your system and to agree that there's some kind of reasonable return on investment that you're looking at on that end, and then on the other end, you, you really need to find passionate people in the primary care setting can be your champions to begin the process because it's a significant cultural change. 
and it takes time to develop that excitement and interest um, uh, as, as you go forward. Also, it's important to try to look. I mentioned that there's several components that are critical for this to work, and sometimes people will just use the idea of collaboration without having the components, which really are simple. There's just a, a way to measure outcomes, some kind of tool, hemoglobin A1C for diabetes, a PHQ-9 for depression, some kind of tracking system, which is a registry, a data registry that you may have or may not in your clinic. Then you, then you need a care coordinator, someone to keep track of those patients and to feedback what's happening. And then you need a specialist to sit down every, uh, with those patients and really uh, make sure that they don't fall through the cracks. Because in healthcare as it is, what happens is if, unless you're loud and make noise, the primary care provider is too busy to notice that you're at home not doing well. And so we need a system to track these people when they're not in the office. So, Mark, uh, just in closing, you said the specialist has to sit down with the patients. Did you mean sit down and see every patient, or did you mean review their care and how they're doing? No, I'm glad you caught that. Really what's involved is the, the specialist sits down with the care coordinator and goes over every patient that's in the program and makes suggestions to the primary care provider. That specialist then would only typically see those patients that they really feel need to be seen. And often they don't even see them. What they do is they make sure they get hooked up to the mental health providers in the area who are seeing patients so that they can stay focused on this uh, backing the system up role. Well, it certainly is very exciting. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely. We've had with us today Dr. Mark Williams, an expert in uh, delivering primary care mental health services and helping primary care systems get up to speed in the area of adults with depression and now increasingly with other disorder areas as well. Thank you for tuning in. This is Dr. Peter Jensen, child psychiatrist, a professor of psychiatry at the Mayo Clinic. This is the Mayo Clinic series update on child mental health and primary care. You can download any of our podcasts at www.reachmd.com, where you'll hear Dr. Williams' podcast or broadcast, as well as others on this series. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening to updates from the Mayo Clinic. And thank you to Shire Pharmaceuticals, whose educational grant makes this program possible. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show and many others, or to download this segment, go to reachmd.com forward slash Mayo Clinic.